we go. Well, hello, Val. Hello, Leslie. I am so happy to speak with you today. And I'm very pleased to be here. So um, would you mind starting just briefly introduce yourself for anybody who hasn't hasn't come across you before? I'm um, this is Val Thomas, and I'll let you give yourself a little introduction. Thanks, Leslie. So um, as you can hear from my voice, I'm a, I'm a UK based um, person. So I'm a psychotherapist and a, a writer. And I was formerly uh, a counselor educator. And um, I've been working as a psychotherapist for uh, about three decades now. And I specialized in working um, with substance abusers in crisis. And I've got a particular um, speciality. And that speciality is uh, working with mental imagery. And I researched it and I have um, published two books on using mental imagery in counseling and psychotherapy and also using men mental imagery um, in order to enhance sort of creative processes and work projects. And more recently, um, I've become um, particularly concerned with the ideological ideological capture of um, therapy and I've been working with um, a group of people in in order to um, start to produce a very well-informed critique, critique of what's happening to our professions mm -hmm. and I recently um, published a book called Cynical Therapies Perspectives on the Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice. So that's that's it roughly. It's in that capacity that that's how I became acquainted with you was when I was yes. going to school and and kind of coming across these ideological, I guess, uh, paradigms that I hadn't been encountering before. And I was really confused about what was happening and frustrated with it. And I found an article that you had written for New Discourses or was published on New, New Discourses. Mm -hmm. And it really helped to give me a framework for what I was experiencing. And it helped to make, make me understand that this wasn't just some something I was confused about. A lot of people were really concerned about it as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I, and I've been reading <clears throat> this book, the one you, you just spoke of, um, Cynical Therapies, and you're the editor and a, and a contributing author to this book. And one of the things that you said so well, I thought here was, um, that the therapist's role is now to facilitate collective rather than individual change. Yes. Under this, um, this new ideological perspective. And I just wonder, would you say a little bit about how you encountered this and how you came to understand it as you understand it now? Okay. I will. I mean, um, that's, that's, that's quite a complicated question. So I think okay. what, what I'll do is I'll just give a little bit of background um, to why, um, how I started to write about, about this. And then I'll um, uh, switch over to uh, looking at what's happened to the field. Okay. Yes. As far as I can see. So, um, as I said earlier, I've, I've been a therapist for you know three three decades, and the the field has always tilted to the left politically. 
Um, but that was that was fine. I mean, it wasn't it didn't uh, impact the clinical space. So the clinical space was always uh, kind of sacred in terms of it was functionally apolitical. And towards the end of my um, my psychotherapy career, I was a, a, a trainer or I worked in an independent training organisation in northwest London. I started to see some changes happen from about um, to 2016 onwards. I wasn't just in this organization, I could see it in the field. So I suddenly started to encounter some strange new uh, language coming in. I started to see terms such as cisgender, you know, that um, uh, gender, I, those gender ideological terms. And there was no um, discussion about them. And I could see that people were confused, but they felt that they couldn't um, uh, critique this. They, they they had to take it on board. So that was the beginning of it. Um, and then I started to notice that people were expressing quite a lot of enthusiasm for some uh, new publications uh, by people I hadn't heard of, um, such as Robin D'Angelo. And I was starting to look at what she was writing about, these ideas of um, white I had a very uneasy feeling about this coming into the field. And, uh, uh, and meanwhile, of course, I was um, tracking um, Jordan Peterson and his uh, objections to compelled um, pronouns. And I was also starting to follow Benjamin Boyce's work on what was happening in, in, Ever, in, in um, Evergreen. So you could feel that stuff was happening in the in the collective, and of course we'd also gone through our own political um, moment of kind of Brexit, where there was this polarisation was happening. So something was very much in the in the waters. And I remember kind of a, pivot, a, a pivotal moment for me was when I came across a um, a training event organised for our organisation. The title was let's get uncomfortable about race. I mean, I get an emotional reaction even now thinking about that because I'd lived in London since the um, 1970s and it certainly was a place that was uncomfortable about race then. Mm. People were overtly um, prejudiced in the street. You know, it, you know, it wasn't easy being... Um, a member of a minority sort of ethnic group. You know, I was very aware of that. And then decades later, much, much, much more comfortable in a place like London, big multicultural society, great sort of developments. And the idea that we, we would be starting to promote a reversal was very, very alarming. And almost immediately afterwards, of course, we went into all of the political um, stuff with uh, after the death of George uh, Floyd. Mm -hmm. And almost immediately I saw all of our therapy institutions uh, producing um, very strident uh, political declarations, which again, I, 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 was, I, was, I was completely taken aback by the uniformity of these these statements could be it was the same statement but produced by multiple 
multiple different organizations. And it was at that point I, I started to look around for um, thinking there must be other people who are, who were writing you know some uh, critiques of this. And I couldn't find anybody except uh, there was one essay on um, James Lindsay's new discourses by uh, an American um, um, counselor. And I kind of realized then that I would have to start writing. And I started to um, think about what was happening. I mean, obviously there was, there was, there was nothing published. So I had to try to work out from scratch my sense of what was going on. So it was like, it was a little bit like um, a, a carving granite with a sort of a wobbly plastic spoon trying to make some sort of sense. It took me a long time to get to a point where I thought, I, I think I'm making some sort of headway here. And I published a trilogy of, of, of essays on um, James's site. And then out of the responses that came in from those essays, um, myself and um, my colleague who'd also written the other essay realized we needed to set up some kind of platform for um, dissident therapists, which would allow them to um, get together and start to um, develop a kind of community in which we could uh, understand what was going on. And so we set up um, critical um, uh, therapy antidote, that was the platform. Then almost immediately we set up a network on the back of that. And then we started to receive lots and lots of um, responses and emails, particularly from the States mm -hmm. and from people who are in the same situation as you, Leslie, who found themselves utterly dismayed and distraught by what was happening on their therapy training programs. So that's a response to the, um, the, the first part of the question. So um, now to um, thinking about what's happened in the field itself. And really the question being, how come our field has been captured in this way? So, and this is a very broad brush uh, um, analysis. Um, it's much more uh, um, nuanced and um, there are lots and lots of different factors operating. But basically, as far as I can see, our field has been captured in pretty much the same way as all the other fields have been captured. So if we think about this notion of the, um, the slow march through the institutions, therapy has been subjected to a speeded up version of the slow march of critical theory through the institutions. So if you go back to the, um, the turn of the millennium, the field was um, very diverse, lots and lots and lots of different approaches to counseling and psychotherapy. So we, you know, it, was, it was a pluralistic field. And on the side of the field, there were a group of um, activist clinicians who were developing uh, multicultural competencies in therapists. Um, I mean, one of the most famous names would be um, Derek Wingso. 
Now, their project was a worthy one. The culture was changing. Um, it was becoming uh, more multicultural. It was very important that uh, cultural sensitivity and these kind of trainings were developed. They, they certainly weren't around when I was training. So it was a very important project. So you could say they were in the wings working away. Mm -hmm. And then in the noughties, what happened more generally is we started to see um, uh, activist scholars moving into uh, or, or, or uh, moving into academia. I mean, they've been established for a while, but they were spreading in academia and they were uh, disseminating um, a kind of a range of uh, applications of postmodernism and critical theory. So uh, these new um, areas of study were having a very um, big effect on academia. And they were also influencing the way in which therapy theory was developing as well. So um, new ideas were developing within um, therapy about new narratives really about what therapy was. So it was being, um, so the problematics of therapy were being um, um, thought about. And therapy was being coming characterized as a product of a um, of white supremacy. That's was one idea. And so these ideas of the importance of decolonizing the therapy field were starting to um, uh, be um, kind of broadcast. Now that was going on, but at the same time, what was also happening, which wasn't apparent really to most people in the field, was that activist clinicians were getting into the um, therapy institutions mm. and they were establishing um, um, themselves with political power, uh, particularly in the professional bodies. So and a good example would be the uh, APA. Now this is very significant because the professional bodies are uh, responsible for um, uh, guidance to practice. And they also feed into um, regulatory criteria for the professions. So the direction that professional bodies go in um, will drive the field. So very soon you start to see um, expressions of this in the kind of practice guidance that is being published by um, the APA, and, and I'm using the APA because it's the biggest professional body, so it's the most influential, but it's happening in the UK in our professional bodies as well. So you see guidance of uh, practice for, for boys and men, for example, you get all these notions about toxic masculinity, and you also get um, um, up, um, new versions of guidance of practice for multicultural uh, practice, and it's, it goes through a big shift to uh, a guidance that's informed by intersectionality. And what's happening here is that the field is pivoting. It's pivoting 
it's 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 no longer moving in the direction of including more and more dimensions of um, human experience. It's actually pivoting away from individual and universal um, uh, dimensions of human experience. It's pivoting away from that to foregrounding um, the collective experience of the person. And it's also attributing the difficulties that clients have primarily to um, a, kind of, um, a, a kind of social and cultural context. It's not arising out of their own individual experience. So a very, very, very big pivot is happening. There is no critique whatsoever. And the reason there's no critique is the same reason um, as the lack of critique across the rest of society. Any attempts to critique it, you'd be cancelled and you'd be accused of being um, a, a bigot or reactionary. And of course, clinicians are particularly sensitised to those kind of slurs. So by the time we get to um, 2020, the reactions after the death of um, George, Flo uh, George Floyd served to completely and utterly uh, consolidate all of this. And the field is tied up. Does that make sense, Leslie? It does. And and I think it's a good description. It's really useful to, to hear it in a timeline like that. And one of the things that you write, write about in the book is about how this is being done through the subversion and the changing of language. Yes. And how changing definitions of things like social justice and, um, and other examples that you give creates a difference in training across the, the cohorts. So whereas a previous cohort of, of um, psychotherapy trainees would have learned this way, the next cohort comes in and they, they sound like they're learning the same things, but they're actually learning a quite, quite a different thing under the guise of the original. And so generationally, as older therapists are retiring, you've got a new group of people coming in that are, that have a very different agenda. And exactly. I, exactly. No, and I'm just, just to say that, I mean, the, the, I mean, a way in which you could kind of summarize this is to say, is to say, I mean, it's a simple way. You could say that the, um, the label on the tin remains the same. Yeah. So the label is counseling and psychotherapy, but the contents have been radically changed. Mm -hmm. And this is the, 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 the speeded up march through the institution. So the uh, it's, it's it's kind of obvious that we've got a, like an older generation who are still practicing traditional therapies, and also there you know there's still some therapy schools that are producing uh, or teaching traditional um, therapies, but the, um, the the trainings that are happening in particularly in the university mm -hmm. um, uh, context, particularly in the states, has shifted dramatically into critical social justice driven therapy, but they don't label it as such. Mm -mm. That's the key. And my sense is that therapists, um, 
I mean, sort of advanced clinicians, like most people in the therapy field, didn't understand the um, postmodern rhetorical strategies that were being used. I didn't. I didn't realize it until I started to investigate. And also when I started to read um, uh, work by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, that was incredibly educative for me. And then I could see what was going on in terms of the language. And one of the big issues was the radical change that happened in terms of the definition of social justice. So social social justice would have traditionally been uh, understood in a particular way. Um, but the use of it now is informed by a completely different worldview, a radically different worldview. And the way it's positioned is, and, and the way this strategy was absolutely brilliant, the strategy was to present it as an evolution. This social justice is even more inclusive, uh, more humanitarian, yeah, mm-hmm. than the previous version. But it isn't. It's, it's something that's completely different. Mm-hmm. And so that if you objected to it, it, it'd be very, very easy to be accused of being a reactionary. And... Uh, my bet noir about my particular generation, boomer generation, is that they were suckers for that. Mm. They were not able to withstand any accusation of being uh, reactionary because they were revolutionary in their youth. So, yes, I'm 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 not very happy with my my cohort. Well, it's it's really an interesting sleight of hand. And um, you you talked about the the three postmodern rhetorical strategies, and the first being the subversion of language and the changing of language. What were the other two? A changing the narrative okay. um, was a really um, is a really significant one, and I alluded to that earlier on. So um, the the narrative of of um, therapy is being worked on. And to go back to that historical overview, so if we go back to the um, uh, the way it was at the turn of the millennium, with the um, the clinical activists and also the um, the politically minded clinicians who were developing those um, um, multicultural competencies. They, they, they were then able to um, position themselves and the work that they were doing as being the next uh, evolution in therapy. Mm-hmm. So it was the next force. So we've got an overview of, of therapy in that, you know, each generation we get another um, very major grouping and development in, in therapy. So it started with psychoanalytical um, schools on oh, the behavioral schools, psychoanalytical schools. Then we see hum- humanistic schools, and they were able to start to say, "Well, what we're working on is actually the next um, 
the next force in, in therapy. And this is where therapy is going. It's the direction or the future of therapy. So once you get a, a story like that and you establish the story, it's, it's very, very difficult to um, uh, argue against. Mm -hmm. And also, this is the story that's then sold to the next generation of trainees. So the main interest or the main focus is about training up the next generations of therapists. And of course, you were you were right in the middle of that, mm -hmm. Leslie, but you, were, but you saw through it. So I'm just going to turn the tables a little bit now. That's okay, because I'm very interested in this. Why do you think you were able to see through it? Well, it, it, it contradicted my own logical thinking, for one thing. It seemed reductive. It seemed overly simplistic. And um, I, I went to uh, undergrad back in the early 2000s um, and I focused on psychology and I'd had the opportunity to take some classes with the master's clinical psychology program at that time for undergrad credit. And I saw such a contrast between how these subjects were being taught now versus how the quality of the teaching that I'd received previously. So the simplicity and the, it was almost like a, a, a caricature. I really felt like sophomoric, like uh, childish stuff that was being taught in the diversity module, which was um, called multicultural perspectives. And it was considered a core of our counseling program. And it was, it was so utterly simplistic that it was hard to believe this was being taught in a graduate level applied psychology program. So I had the benefit of contrast because I was being, uh, you know, had had the exposure previously to a higher quality academic yes. program. Mm -hmm. And that really helped. And I, mm -hmm. I also think age and experience was a part of that as well, because, you know, as you say, it's sort of a speeded up march through the institutions. I think we have seen something go on on fast forward here recently, but I think that kids who are a little younger um, and have gone through high school programs and then university programs more recently might be so steeped in this kind of thinking that they don't think to question it necessarily. And so I really do think being older and having different exposures really helped. And then it just, it just contradicted my, my own logical, um, you know, critical thinking. So those factors were. I mean, I think, I, I mean, this must be right because it's, it, there's something about a, a generational change and there's something about life experience. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, one of the things that, that, that I'm particularly concerned about is that we, we, we know already from a lot of the um, large scale survey work that's being done by academics that um, critical social justice or some of its basic uh, tenets are, much, are, um, are, are kind of much more well established in younger people. So they're more likely to um, accept the cancelling mm -hmm. Controversial um, speaker than um, previous generations, so it's like they've been primed mm -hmm. already, and then they they're coming into these new 
um, ideologically captured training, therapy training programs. And they, exactly what you're saying, they, it's a fit for them. Mm-hmm. They've been taught, they've been taught to think this way. And so it's not a big put, it's not a big um, uh, issue, is it, for them to, it doesn't, it doesn't challenge their thinking, it just slots in. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's, it, it, it's extremely simplistic and reductive, narrow um, uh, view of what it is to be a human being. And the idea that we're losing all of the kind of richness from um, the traditions of counseling and psychotherapy. I mean, this is is a tragedy. It really isn't. Something that you said a little while ago about the individual and the universal being lost in favor of the collective, I think that's, it's really interesting to point that out because it is, um, it's like a, we're trying to aggregate and and get averages and apply that back to the individual with with this focus on the collective it's like the and by definition that's reductive and it does it loses the humanity and the the individual experience and all the potentials that go into creating one person's worldview just loses and the complexity it loses mm-hmm. all the complexity and the uniqueness so there's this sense that um um you know, a critical social justice driven therapist is not encountering the client as an individual now. It's more encountering the client as an avatar of a, a set of, um, of identities, intersected identities. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, I mean, I really notice in the way in which um, the therapeutic relationship is talked about in kind current literature and also incredibly um, within the guidance given by the um, uh, professional bodies there's this sense now that the uh, agenda for the therapy is the therapist's agenda and that the therapist um, can manipulate the client and you'll probably know more about this because you were being you were uh, being taught how to work um, with these ideas of um, of, of um, broaching and bringing mm-hmm. um, uh, bringing identities to the foreground, but this idea that your job as a therapist is to push for this particular um, perspective to come to the foreground, no matter what the ther- not no matter what the client's issues are, mm-hmm. is is well, it's not therapy, is it? No, it's not. not well, it's not healing. It's not a healing. It's not a. I mean, it's if we wanted to reduce it to something very, very simple, you could say, it, this therapy is ceasing to be a healing practice and becoming a a politicized cultural practice. That's what. That's how I view it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a practice that's designed to. Um, it's designed to weaken the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's activism. And it goes back yeah, to, yeah, yeah. to what, what you said in the beginning when you said that um, the this field is captured the way so many other fields are captured currently. It is, it's very similar in that way. And yet I think it's for the way what's being done in therapy, similar to what's being done in education, is more 
is more uh, malevolent and more insidious because it's it creates a group of people who are designed to disseminate and propagate this thinking in in the next person. It creates its own self perpetuation through inculcating, you know, this into teachers and into therapists. We've got people who are trained to go out into the world and influence the next, the next person, you know, uh, topics like talk to your white clients about race, where you're supposed to use, and, and this is pretty close to a quote, like see your white clients as a clinical opportunity to change the way that the culture is moving. So you, you, instead of looking at your client as a person who's coming to you and going to tell you what their needs and their, their goals and their, and their feelings are, you see them as an opportunity to create change that goes through a domino effect down the line. And, and this isn't being hidden. This is just, this is very openly being discussed as the goal of therapy now. Well, uh, that's why we called our book Cynical Therapies. I mean, obviously we're riffing on um, James and Helen's title of cynical theories, but, but it's a cynical operation. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important that um, we find ways to um, uh, defend the healing ethos of therapy. Yeah, and what do you see as the potential, what, what do you see as the future for this field and how do we distinguish the, the social justice therapist from the, the classical therapist? Well, I've been um, I've been thinking about this um, a lot recently because I've returned to the final chapter in in the book, which I contributed, which was on the future, what we thought, what I thought the future held. And of course, this is a bit of a foolhardy task, really, isn't it? Doing any kind of predictions, but um, so my, so so my sense is that this is. Um, uh, that the field is fracturing is, is inevitable, really. Um, so as critical social justice becomes a hegemony in the therapy field, then uh, practitioners of traditional therapy will be pushed to the edges. However, I also think that as this happens, new um, new structures and new uh, practices are going to develop, which because you can't, um, um, the healing impulse um, will just clothe itself in new forms. So ultimately, I feel optimistic. You know, whatever happens, um, um, he- healing will come through in some kind of new form. But my concern is the is the collateral damage that's going to take place particularly with um, clients who are damaged through this. So I think our job is um, to shine a light publicly on what's happening in the therapy field and to we have to withstand um, the, the attempts to cancel us and we have to set up um, all kinds of different ways of alerting the the, the general public, the potential consumers of therapy to what's happening so they can start to find ways to different, differentiate between political 
therapists and traditional therapists. We have to set up new organisations, new professional bodies. I mean, it's starting new training institutions. So this is obviously going to take time, but we have to sort of shout it from the rooftops, Leslie, in the way that you you've been doing. We have to tell people therapy is being changed and not for the better. And this is this is this is the 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 best we can. We've got a. Um, we've got a, a sort of ethical duty to um, tell uh, or to alert the consumers of therapy that um, they need to have clear and transparent descriptions of the services they're being provided. See, the way it's slipping through, and this is to go back, you, you asked me, um, you know, what were the sort of three main postmodern um, strategies? And I talked about two. Well, another or third postmodern strategy is to find ways to sidestep, you know, to go to to not not expose the truth of what's actually going on, not be transparent. And so, by this new form of therapy hiding itself or disguising itself as generic therapy, it bypasses all those obligations to be clear about the service that's being offered. I mean, I mean, uh, you wouldn't go, um, you wouldn't go to a counsellor who who described themselves as a generic counsellor and then be happy if you were given um, overtly uh, a Christian guidance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. would you? I mean, and so that's why we expect somebody who has that, who has a particular um, religious perspective on the therapy, and that's going to be part of the the therapy process that that must be labeled as such so mm -hmm. you'd go to a counselor and they would be a christian counselor mm -hmm. so this approach to therapy is trying to bypass that transparency by disguising itself or hiding itself behind uh, generic counseling and psychotherapy and that's the thing that really needs to be targeted now we have to kind of force the labelling. There'll be a lot of resistance to it. But it's very important to force. I mean, one could also one could say that it's perfectly okay to have critical social justice therapy as one modality in a pluralistic field. I mean, whether one agrees with it or not, if it's labelled accurately, mm -hmm. then people have a free choice, and and there might be more and more people who would want that political approach. Mm -hmm. And then they would seek it out. That would that would seem to me like a, um, a like a good solution. But of course, this ideology um, is a totalizing ideology, and resists any kind of boundaries like that. So it's attempting to take over the entire field and remove all of the different um, approaches. Mm -hmm. I think I might have lost my thread then, but um, no, no. I think that ties perfectly into what you said earlier yeah. about how it sort of this this critical social justice version of therapy sort of positioned itself as a fourth movement and and yet as you said it refuses criticism people are afraid to critique it and get um sort of 
labeled as bad people or, and invalid if they try to, mm-hmm. which is very unlike the other movements. I mean, we still have every, but we still have a variety of people using all those previous modalities. It's still perfectly fine to be a psychodynamic behaviorist, existentialist, humanistic. I mean, those, these things are all used and recognized and respected within the field. And yet this comes along and it's not really another flavor. It's not really another modality. It's something that wants to, as you say, totalize and sort of encompass all of those other things within its own framework. And unlike those other movements, it is not met with robust debate and discussion and, and intellectual, um, you know, theorizing, it's just accepted at face value with these new names and these, it's just, you are with us or you're against us. So it's very different. It's totally different. I mean, and I think that's, I mean, that's the crucial point. It's uh, people don't understand how different it is. It's, 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 it's not a therapy. No, I mean, I don't know how many times I have to say this. It, it, it's got nothing to do with therapy. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a it's a completely different worldview mm-hmm. in which, quite frankly, therapy isn't possible. Mm-hmm. If you look at his claims, it's impossible to change, actually. It's got, it's got no sight. I'm going to... I don't want to get sort of triggered now and go off on one, but it's got no, th- it's got no theory of psychological change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No theory of change whatsoever, except for becoming a political activist. And how can a, an ideology that sees no value in individuality even claim to provide therapy for individuals seeking change and improvement in their lives? Exactly. So, yeah. Absolutely. So what, what are your number one recommendations for either, uh, I guess there's a, the, the people who are coming out with questions about what to do next are typically either clients who are looking for therapists who aren't going to be political therapists who are trying to figure out how to navigate this and keep their license. And well, of course, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then therapy yeah. students who are, and I've been contacted by two just in this past couple of weeks that I've spoken with who are in the middle of therapy programs, just as I was, and wondering, do I keep going because this is crushing my soul (laughs) or do I pull out and lose the money and the energy I've put into a career that I'm, that I was hoping to have. I really can't, I mean, I'm not in a position to give any, any kind of advice and it would be hypocritical of me anyway. I'm a, I'm a, uh, a, a therapist at the end of my career and although I've done my utmost to try and um, articulate the problems I'm, I'm not part of the future of therapy I'm an old person leaving the field so my uh, so the only only thing I would say is that um, it, it, it's important to join networks and networks that are are developing. Um, I mean, I know it's a bit corny, uh, but, but, you know, read something like this to arm yourself with um, uh, arguments. I do think um, we're going to see more critiques coming out now. Mm -hmm. That's my sense. And, you know, I think this, this is the beginning. And in terms of 
um, um, and potential clients, a classic um, question to ask a potential therapist is how they make sense of the what's their diagno diagnostic framework? How do they make sense of um, of presenting problems? Mm -hmm. And if they say that um, it's, uh, it's, it's whatever you bring is is very likely to have um, uh, something to do with social and, and cultural conditions, that would Im immediately bring up a kind of question mark that you might have a political therapist. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say I'm a political therapist, by the way. And also look at websites because you'll see key terms in 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 the websites mm -hmm. and. You know, we hope to be developing more resources which will um, inform um, um, potential clients. Mm -hmm. But that's really as you know, that's as that's as far as I could go. But there, there, there are more and more of us working on this edge now. Well, and I think that the social justice therapists are often very proud of their their stances, and they put their keywords. Like you say, if you look at the websites, you can find those phrases and words if you know what to look for. And and we're we're also we're hoping to um, um, develop some webinars and seminars in the in the in the not too distant future as we as our organisation develops, mm -hmm. which will um, start to provide some education. Well, and, to and you said and new therapists. Sorry. You, you, as you say that you're developing webinars and offering that information and you've done, you've created this platform, this, this website, Critical Therapy Antidote yeah. and the corresponding network where you are giving people uh, a place to write. There's so many good yes. articles on this, on this we've, website. We've had fantastic writers coming in and then, and the writers coming in, they, they range from, uh, you know, people who are at the top of their game in terms of their specialisms, right through to people who are writing uh, incredibly insightful insider accounts that allow you to see what's going on within the field or within the experience of being a, a client. So I've just been sort of thrilled with the um, with what people have been sending us. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a wealth of information and perspective, and I think that uh, for people who are confused, that's a great place to connect and and hear how other people are navigating this. And yes. I, I, you say that you're not in the future of therapy, but I, I, <laughs> you have certainly been an amazing inspiration to me and to many other people and the network that you've created and the work that you're doing. I hope that it is pivotal and part of a, a positive future for this field that that moves things, even if it's going to have to be splintered, moves a part of the field in a very positive direction back towards true healing for the people who need it. Thank you, Leslie. I hope, oh yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, Val, I appreciate so much the time that you've given me today and this conversation. And uh, is there any final place you'd like to direct people or anything that we left um, off that we should have mentioned? 
I mean, there was, yeah, I mean, we could have gone on for hours, really. Yeah, there's yeah. just so many interesting things to talk about. Um, uh, no, the, the links you put below uh, will be will be great. And anything anything else, then we'll, um, then I can send to you. Okay. And um, just to say, I'm just so pleased to see um, the, the the radical centre uh, expand and develop in this wonderful um organic and natural way an authentic way it's um it's been it's been great to follow you thank too, you <laughs> thank you so much thank you for all your help and encouragement mm -hmm. and this book again cynical therapies it you can get this on the website criticaltherapyantidote.org i will put those links in yes, the, it, I mean, it's selling. It's you know, it's on Amazon, and from there's Amazon. a whole, there's, there's a you know, there's a, a, a very wide range of um, contributors there. Mm -hmm, so there's mm -hmm. something for everybody, mm -hmm. and it's international as well. So it's not just a UK perspective. Is half of the writers um, are based in the in the states. So, well, I'm still working my way through it, and I'm finding it <laughs> wonderful. So um, I highly recommend. And thank you again, Val. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you. It was great talking with you. You too.